first scripture reading this morning is going to be from the Psalms. It's Psalm 99, and we'll read all of it. Psalm 99. The Lord is king. Let the peoples tremble. He sits a throne from the cherubim, and let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, and he exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he, mighty king, lover of justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Extol the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They cried to the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of a cloud, and they kept his decrees and the statues that he gave them. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of those of their wrongdoing. Extol the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord, our God, is holy. The word of God for the people of God. All right, so yes, Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in the commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But whenever, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take the veil off until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what had been commanded, the Israelites would see the face of Moses, that the skin of his face was shining. And Moses would put the veil on his face again until he went to speak with him. The word of God for the people of God. On our first scripture reading, our last scripture reading is from the gospel, and it'll be the gospel of Luke, chapter 9, uh, verses 28 through 36. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his servant Luke, 9, verses 28. About eight days, after, about eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face were transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men came, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see, and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep, and when they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with them as Moses and Elijah were starting to leave. Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it is wonderful for us to be here. Let us make three shelters as memorials, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and a terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice was finished, Jesus was there alone. And they didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The word of God for the people of God. 
So one of the things that I do when I'm at home alone with the girls and cleaning house and just fluttering, and they're, you know, they're just fluttering around doing what children do. I'm not always certain what that is. But um, when I'm cleaning the house is I put music on on my phone, which is how I listen to Audrey's song like 400 times. But anyway, I put it on my phone, and I put my phone in my back pocket. That way um, it fo the music follows me throughout the house as I'm cleaning. It just seems like the most logical thing to do because if I put headphones on, I'm afraid the girls would disappear. Um, as they want to do. Um, they just kind of disappear. The girls don't like it when music comes out of my uh, pocket because it ruins their shows and interrupts them, but I don't really care. Um, but inevitably, at some point throughout all of this, I'll decide I need to text somebody or I need to add something to my calendar as I'm thinking and doing things. And every single time, I can't find my phone. Uh, I would be embarrassed to tell you how many times I've gone back and like looked through the refrigerator I was just cleaning and been like, where is my phone? Where is my phone? And it almost feels like that Sesame Street bit where there is Big Bird and a very large like circle and Big Bird speaks to like the, the American audience, the children out there, and says, can you help me find the circle? And all the kids in America are screaming at their TV like, there's your circle, dude. Like, there is your circle. And Big Bird's like, where's the circle? Where's the that is me all the time with my phone. Um, I can never find the phone that is making noise in my pocket. I am Big Bird losing the circle all the time. Um, but life's like that a lot, right? We miss those things that are often right in front of us the whole time. And that is the story of the transfiguration. The transfiguration is what we call that portion of the text that we just read. It's where Jesus showed up to the disciples. And he shows the disciples a part of the world that had been there all along. It's always been there. But it had never been part of their world, what they understood. They were bewildered, and they were astonished, and they were trembling with fear when they saw and when they understood that heaven was already here and that Jesus, well, he's the king of heaven. And it's hard for us to read this story of the transfiguration and not see this parallel to the Moses and Moses on that infamous mountain, right? Even in the translation that I read, it even uses the word exodus. Um, so it is obvious that the writer is trying to show us a parallel to Moses. Moses received the law, but at the transfiguration, it was about a new covenant God was making with our human family. Moses went up on Mount Sinai to speak to God and receive the laws of God. The Bible says, when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord <laughs> called to Moses from within the cloud. So Moses, I mean, not Moses, sorry, Matthew is tying the transfiguration to what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus, the new Moses, right? That's what he's trying to tell us. Moses came down the mountain with the covenant that was written in stone. But Jesus comes down the mountain with a new covenant that is written in flesh. He's writing it on human hearts. The new covenant of Jesus takes things that were old and that were stagnant and that were hardened, things that were made of stone, and he breathes new life into them. And he makes them soft and pliable, and alive. 
Jesus is in the resurrection business. And the writer was letting us know through this mosaic imagery that Jesus was taking the tablets of the law and he was breathing life into them and creating for us this covenant of grace. Both Moses and Jesus are surrounded by a great cloud representing the presence of God. It's often known as the Shekinah, a cloud of glory that was made for both of them and made them shine like the sun. Again, the writer makes this connection to the Old Testament as he reports that Moses appears to Jesus. And along with Moses, Elijah, the prophet, appears. Moses, we have to realize, represents the Old Testament law. And then Elijah, well, he represents the New Testament prophets. It is telling us as the reader that Jesus is not divorced from the Old Testament, but he is intrinsically linked to it. He does not discard the Old Covenant, but he transforms it, he builds on it, and ultimately he resurrects it. But one thing that is interesting about this in the transfiguration is although God in that cloud affirms Jesus as the Son of God whom he loves and with whom he is well pleased and with whom we should listen to, that cloud says nothing about Moses and nothing about Elijah, even though they were right there. In that moment, we see what the writer and that the father is trying to tell us. What the disciples will learn a few verses down, and that is that Jesus is not just another prophet. That he is better. Jesus is better than both the law and the prophets. Jesus isn't the new Moses, as one might have thought, as maybe they were trying to write him into. He's not the new Moses. Jesus is Messiah. Peter, James, and John were then so overcome with fear, they didn't know what to do or what to say. That sounds like the disciples. That's, they never knew what to do or what to say. But then Peter blurts out, Lord, it is good for us to be here. Peter has a plan, right? He was the planner. It is good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. But then he's interrupted. He's interrupted by that voice from the cloud of glory saying, This is my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. But Peter is impetuous, right? He doesn't even realize what he is saying, but he needs to know that Jesus is not among equal. As much as Moses and Elijah are important, three-tenths would not have been appropriate because Jesus is not on par with Moses. He is not another lawgiver. And neither is he one of the prophets just like Elijah. Jesus is different. He is completely different because he is the son of God. The story of the transfiguration, one could arguably say, even starts the chapter before. And in the Bible it says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, Who do you say the son of man is? And they replied, Well, some say he's John the Baptist. Well, and some said he's Elijah. Well, and some said, you know what, he's Jeremiah. He's, he might be Jeremiah. He might be any of the other prophets. But what about you, Jesus asks. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And again, Simon, Simon Peter, the planner, he has an answer. Simon Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. 
And Jesus immediately says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this is not revealed to you by man, but my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's reminding us that Jesus is not another John the Baptist. He's not Elijah. He's not Jeremiah. He's not the prophets. He is unique. He is without equal. We need to understand in our lives that Jesus is not just another religious leader. He is unique, and he stands alone, and there's no one with whom Jesus can be compared. One of the things I do with the youth on Wednesday night is I always ask the question at the end of every lesson is, how does this make it different? How does this make it different? How does this scripture or this topic that we're talking about, how does it make it different than other religions, other cultures? How is it different than how you think life should be? How does this make it different? How does Jesus make it different? This past week, we discussed loving our enemies and how loving our enemies is different than loving our neighbor. How it is a unique call of Jesus and that that is important. Why? Why is it so important that we point out how we're different than other religions and other people and other things? Because what Jesus says is different. It's not normal to love those who persecute us. It's not normal to care for our enemies. Because who Jesus is is different. Jesus leads us to places that normal human logic normal human teaching, and normal human ethics don't. Jesus is different. Normal human morality tells us that killing is bad. And it's not hard to come to that conclusion. Murder is bad. But Jesus says hatred in your heart towards another person is just as bad as killing them. Jesus is different, and he makes morality, he takes it up another notch, and he challenges us. We need to know that Jesus isn't like Elijah and he isn't like Moses, that Jesus is different because he's calling us. He is calling us to be different as well. And he's calling us to be like him. The point of the transfiguration is not just to point us to Jesus, though. It's to point us to the reality of the kingdom of God. It helps us to see that the kingdom of God is not just somewhere out there. It's not out there, it's right here, and it's next to us. It's what people often miss, even though they're looking for it, just like I did with my phone. It's right in front of us. Peter wanted to mark the spot and make it sacred. He wanted to set up three shelters, and actually the original language says tents or tabernacles, places of worship. He wanted to mark that spot as sacred, not realizing that there are not just a few spots in this world that are sacred, that the whole world is sacred, that, we, that the whole world belongs to God, that he created it and he inhabits it. Some of the most sacred moments of my life I have experienced outside the church walls. Sometimes, for me, beverages on a table with chips and salsa on a Friday night feel like holy communion wine when you talk with friends about the struggles and the victories and the problems of this week. Sometimes, late summer nights in a pool watching the kids play, talking with dear friends, well, that can feel as sacred as the waters of baptism. Maybe you find sacredness in digging in the dirt and planting things and and seeing things brought to life and seeing the beauty of the very handiwork of God. 
Maybe you find sacredness in a soft lamplight, in a good book as the sun's going down on a spring day. There's sacredness in our moments. There is holiness in our days because the glory of the Father isn't stuck in tabernacles or in this place. But it's in the tents of flesh that walk amongst us. It's in me and it's in you. Life is sacred because we are sacred. Once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replies, the kingdom of God not, does not come with careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within us. Dallas Willard says, he's one of my favorite authors. If you haven't read him, I hope everybody does. Dallas Willard says, the gospel is not about getting into heaven when we die. It's about getting into heaven before we die. We get to participate. We are allowed to participate in the life of God and take on his image and character before we die. The kingdom is here and the kingdom is us. The ancients used to talk about thin spaces. Thin spaces are when the kingdom of God rubs up against the kingdom of this world and begins to break into our consciousness where we can see it. It's been here all along, but we didn't have the eyes to see it. Almost like Corey said, we didn't have our glasses on to see it clearly. In the Bible, we can see thin spaces when God's talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. We can see thin spaces when God speaks to Moses through that burning bush. We can see thin spaces when Stephen is seeing heaven open up as he's about to be stoned. We can see thin spaces when Jesus is healing people and raising people from the dead. We see this. These are the times when the veil separating the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God are so thin that they are merged together and that the kingdom of God becomes visible for us as humans. Peter, James, and John had their eyes opened to see that the kingdom was not a future event, but it's a present reality. It's here and it's now. And when you walk out of this place today, you will be surrounded by the kingdom of God. Whether you see it or whether you feel it is actually irrelevant because it's there and it exists. Our part is to be aware of it. Our part is to live in that reality and to actively participate in the life of God as it surrounds us and as it is within us. And as many of you know, Lent is coming up. The Lenten season is upon us. And I wanted to give the church an opportunity to engage in some of those thin spaces. Many of you actively participated in our Advent giving, and I wanted to allow all of you an opportunity to participate in a Lenten giving project as well. Lent is often a time where we think about fasting, about connecting with the suffering of Jesus in some small way. I know for Lent in the past, I've given up coffee. That was a thing. Um, I've given up coffee. I've given up meat for Lent. I've given up breakfast for Lent before. I've done several things throughout my life, and, you know, you just kind of think about it, and you pick a thing to give up for Lent. This year, though, we don't just want to engage in the sufferings of Christ. We want to meet with the suffering that is around us. 
We reached out to Manor House of Memphis, which is a place where the homeless gather and receive, like the homeless there, it's not a, a mission of sorts, but they receive clothes and um, a hot shower um, and several other things at Manor House. Um, and so we reached out to them and we asked Manor House what their needs were. How could we best help them? And they said that one of their biggest needs is new men athletic shoes. That is something that they need. Because if you are walking around without a home all day on the hot streets of Memphis, your shoes get worn out very quickly. And they're always in need of, of new shoes. So my suggestion for us for this Lenten season is that when we skip our Friday morning Starbucks run for Lent, that we take that money that we were investing on ourselves and invest them in a new pair of shoes for someone that might need it. Next Sunday, I'm going to have a table in the back. Um, and at that table, I hope that by Holy Week is piled high with brand new shoes for people who are hurting and who are suffering. If you have any questions about the logistics of that, I'd be happy to answer any questions at Sunday school. But the transfiguration is all about seeing something that was here all along and then truly recognizing it and engaging with it. It's about seeing the glory of God that's been here the whole time that we often have the propensity to miss. And it's about us missing how we can be a part of the kingdom of God around us. It's about how easy it is to ignore those without homes that we see every day. But I'm grateful to worship with this group of people that are choosing to recognize the hurting and the forgotten and I'm excited to engage with those people, with all of you. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we are grateful. We are grateful for you.